0: The following sermon was recorded at Chiang Mai Christian Fellowship in Chiang Mai, Thailand. For more information, please view our website at www.ccfth.org. Explicit obligations of her profession. The theft and the faked paperwork were declared as symptoms and ought to have been treated as such. I don't know about you, but when I read that, it kind of blew my mind that somebody who did those type of things, that their employer would have to make concessions for them. But it's uh, symptomatic of the problems of the world we live in of addictions, not only to alcohol and drugs, but also to sexual passions, violence, cell phones, many other forms of bondage that entraps people. When people choose to persist in a sin, they develop less and less control over it until eventually they forfeit any choice entirely. When people get to the point of addiction, they cannot successfully control their sinful thoughts and actions even when they may want to. And ironically, the more one tries to assert a self-centered false freedom, the more one becomes enslaved to sin. Today's passage is in Galatians five thirteen to 18. For you were called to be free, brothers, only don't use this freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but serve one another through love, for the entire law is fulfilled in one statement, love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, watch out or you will be consumed by one another. I say then, walk by the Spirit, and you will not carry out the desires of the flesh. For the flesh desires what is against the Spirit, and the Spirit desires what is against the flesh. These are opposed to each other, so that you don't do what you want. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Freedom in Christ is at the very center of the gospel. We read in Luke 4.18 when Jesus began his ministry, he read, it says, The Spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set free the oppressed. Before we start digging into this passage, let's take a moment to reflect on the situation facing the Galatian church. I'm sure all of us have seen graffiti on walls or buildings. When Kyung and I lived in Okinawa, there was a stretch of coastline that had a barrier wall on it. It had lots of graffiti. Some was very good. They were definitely talented artists. And some were even gospel-centered as mission teams came to Okinawa. If we think about graffiti, if it existed at the time of Paul's letter to the Galatians, here's what it might have looked like to those residents. The only good Gentile is a circumcised one. Next to this was a comment from a Christian. Abraham was a Gentile, which was supplanted by a Judaizer with, yeah, but he was circumcised. A follower of Paul came along and commented on the whole section, so what? At another location it read, all in capitals, long live the law, which was crossed out by a Christian who wrote, long live life, to which a depressed person added, life stinks. But under that a Christian wrote, the law stinks. But a Judaizer came along, crossed it out, and wrote, Gentiles stink. On another section of the wall it read, Jews are cut above the rest, obviously written by a circumcised Jew. A Christian wrote, grace isn't cheap, but it's free. But someone crossed that out, maybe a Judaizer, and wrote, nothing is free. Then there was a poem about Paul. There was a young man, man named Saul who changed his first name to Paul. It didn't make him an apostle or anything colossal, just a fellow with an awful lot of gall. Next to this was a string of sayings about freedom. Free me, free beer. Crossed out with nothing is free, freedom is a myth, and a promise is a promise. Another read, the best fruit is fruit of the vine, to which someone added, amen. This is a humorous picture of what could have been taking place in Galatia, but it's also a very serious picture of the problems that the church in Galatia was experiencing as being pulled in different directions, by the truth of the gospel message, and the falsehood of the message being taught by the Judaizers. The title of this sermon is called to be free. In verses 13 and 14, Paul talks about freedom. Freedom from the flesh. And I don't know about you, but don't you wish you could be free from the yearnings of the flesh? Back in Galatians five one which Tim preached about last week. Paul told the Galatians that freedom in Christ is the right and privilege of every believer. Let me say that again. The right and privilege of every believer. Galatians 5:1 said Christ has liberated us to be free. Stand firm then and don't submit again to a yoke of slavery. Paul then pointed out five consequences and a suggestion for, for falling back into the slavery written in Galatians 5, 2 to 12. The first one is that Christ will be of no value to you if you submit yourself to the law. You're obligated to follow the entire law, not just a portion of it. You're removed from the sphere of grace. Your spiritual growth and development will be hindered, and it removes the offense of the cross and in verse 12 Paul is so angry and frustrated at this point at the false teachings of the Judaizers that he gives them a suggestion that they would castrate themselves as did the pagan priests of the cult of Sibelian Asia Minor (coughs) the Greek word for flesh is sarx and it can mean various things depending on the context in which it's used in other places in Galatians, Paul uses a term to denote the material or physical dimension. However, in Galatians chapters 5 and 6, Paul's using it in an ethical term that carries a strong negative connotation. It refers to the fallen human nature, it refers to the center of human pride, our indulgence or selfishness, or our self assertion or arrogance. Every one of these examples shows an inward focus and is contrary to God. Having an understanding of how the Jews viewed this helps us understand why the Judaizers pushed this type of message of legalism to the churches in Galatia and how Paul's understanding of this enables him to effectively counter and prove it wrong. All Jews recognized the human propensity to sin and knew that transgressions took place. The rabbinical position was that every human had two desires. One was the yetzer HaTav, which was a good inclination. The second was a yetzer HaRa, which was the evil inclination. And because of these two desires, humans were in a constant struggle to keep the evil inclination Under control, and nowhere in rabbinical literature is there even a suggestion that it is possible to destroy destroy the evil inclination. However, the Jews believed that the Torah was the antidote to the poison of the evil inclination, and when the Torah was studied and a person submitted to its discipline, the guilt feelings were removed, and the person's life was no longer clouded by fear and that the evil inclination would bring about their ruin Paul's call to a life of freedom through grace that does not indulge the flesh is aimed at the Judaizers claim that life apart from the law always leads to the evil inclination rather a life of freedom in Christ would lead a person to follow Jesus and thus the good inclination But he warns them not to use this freedom that they have as a license to sin. And for the first time in Galatians, there is an indication that freedom in Christ has been perverted and misused. The thought of endless grace to cover their sins is a bewitching delusion. There's a quote from J. Brown. The madman who has mistaken his tattered garments for the flowing robes of majesty and his manacles for golden bracelets studded with jewels has not erred so widely as the man who has mistaken carnal license for Christian liberty. To view grace in this manner is to pervert the true nature of grace. And our freedom is not to be used in a selfish manner. Nowhere in this letter does Paul take credit for the salvation of the members of the churches in Galatia. Paul was not the one who called them. He was only an instrument being used by God to preach the gospel. And there's a lesson there. We should never keep a scorecard. Churches should never be in competition with one another. I don't think that's a big problem in Chiang Mai, but I know from friends who I've talked with, emailed with in the States, that there are churches in competition that would like to see their church grow at the expense of, Of the churches down the street. Organizations and agencies should never be in competition. We should all have a spirit of cooperation. And we only have one boss, there's only one head of the church, and that's Jesus. Christians are free because we've been called by God, but how do we handle that freedom? We are affirmed, loved, and elected by God to spread the good news and love others. Get ready for some Bible gymnastics. If you like to follow along in your Bible, I'll say each passage twice, but we're going to be jumping around here. Back in Galatians 4.9, but now since you know God, or rather have become known by God, how can you turn back again to the weak and bankrupt elemental forces? Do you want to be enslaved all over again? Then John eight thirty one to thirty six. John eight thirty one to thirty six. So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed in him, If you continue in my word, you really are my disciples. You will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. We are descendants of Abraham, they answered, and we have never been enslaved to anyone. How can you say you will become free? Jesus responded. I assure you, everyone who commits sin is a slave of sin. A slave does not remain in the household forever, but a son does remain forever. Therefore, if the son sets you free, you really will be free. 1 Corinthians Corinthians 15.10 But by God's grace, I am what I am, and his grace towards me was not ineffective However, I worked more than any of them, yet not I, but God's grace that was in me. 1 Peter 2.16 As God's slaves, live as free people, but don't use your freedom as a way to conceal evil. And finally in 1 John 4.10 Love consists in this, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. The true result of this newly acquired freedom is love. We are called to serve in love. Paul's point here is that a life of freedom is a life of loving others, which is the essence of the law. Paul quotes from Leviticus 19.18. Do not take revenge or bear a grudge against members of your community, but love your neighbors as yourself. I am Yahweh. And also from Matthew twenty-two thirty-nine, The second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. I'm sure that probably every adult and maybe teenager in this room has pondered the question of what is God's will for my life. I have. But the answer is in Scripture. It's in Matthew 28:19 and 20. It contains one command, three participles, and a promise. A command and imperative, and that is to make disciples. That is God's will for each believer's life. We are to win, grow, and send them to a lost world. It contains three participles. Going to the lost. And that could be close. Or in the case of probably everybody in this room, unless you're a visitor, it could be far away from your home. We are to baptize them. It shows a commitment in identifying with Christ. And we are to teach. Obey, teaching them to obey all that Jesus commanded. And if we do that, we're the recipients of the promise that Jesus will be with us. How we may do it may look different but we should all be of one mind with a spirit of cooperation. Imagine a conversation with Jesus when we get to heaven. For me it would go like this. Ted, welcome to heaven. Wow, this is awesome. Yeah, I told you it would be. How many people did you bring with you? Well, there are all those people who came to CCF. Great, but what about the people who never came to CCF? I invited them, but they just wouldn't come to church with me. Jesus, I invited you to join me in heaven. But for that to happen, I had to go to you. Let me ask you a question Is there any greater expression of love, of loving your neighbor, than to share the gospel with them? Love is the opposite of flesh. Love looks away from self and its desires or wishes. It even looks away from one's own needs to help those more needy. Christian freedom is freedom to love and freedom to serve. Outwardly, love is active. It involves affection, and that is not the type of affection between a husband and a wife, but affection for our brothers and sisters. It is not emotional. It is an action that serves others, and it does something beneficial for others. I would speak one word of caution here, that we need to delicately balance what is in Luke 6.30 to, and 31 and what's in 2 Thessalonians 3.10. The first would indicate a genuine need and the second would indicate an artificial need created by irresponsibility. And probably everybody who's been on mission work has been required to read the book When Helping Hurts. So just factor that into that discussion. Inwardly, love is humble. A person can do great acts of service, but do it in pride. Jesus illustrated the proper attitude when he washed the disciples' feet. It takes a humble heart and a servant's role. When the lost view Christians, they should see a house of servants. If the outsiders, the lost, would look at CCF, I hope that they would see servants within CCF. Whatever organization or project you serve in, I hope that they would see servants. And the word serve does not quite adequately translate with enough force into English. It is a form of the Greek noun for slave. If the word slave offends you, then just think of an overly zealous servant. Paul is saying that through love, we make ourselves slaves to our brothers and sisters. Freedom and slavery, in this sense, are not mutually exclusive, but rather intimately connected. Christ delivered us from bondage to the law to a slavery of love for each other. Quote from Luther, A Christian is free and independent in every respect, a bondservant to none. A Christian is a dutiful servant in every respect, owing a duty to everyone. In verse 14, Love your neighbor as yourself. This is a perfect tense verb. It emphasizes a continuing state or condition. You cannot break the law by loving others. Rather, love is a summary of the law and a fulfillment of the law. Romans 13:8 to 10 Do not owe anyone anything except to love one another. For the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. The commandments, do not commit adultery, do not murder, do not steal, do not covet, and whatever other commandment. All are summed up by this, love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor. Love, therefore, is the fulfillment of the law. And where is the ultimate manifestation of love in the New Testament? I was going to point right behind me, but they moved it. The cross. To see it is to be affected by it. Being able to love others is not the result of discipline. It really is a miracle that sometimes we can love each other there's always one danger in Paul's theology of grace. No danger, not a mistake. When Paul says that the end of the time of the law had come and the reign of grace began, it was always possible for someone to say, that then means that I can do what I like, all restraints are lifted, and I can follow where they lead me. law is gone and grace ensures forgiveness anyway. And maybe we've known people like that. But to Paul, there were two obligations. An obligation to God is implicit in his thinking. If God loved us enough to send Christ to die for us, then the love of Christ puts us under a constraint. I cannot bring discredit to a life that God paid for with his own life. And we have an obligation to our neighbors. We are free, but our freedom loves its neighbors as itself. In verse 15, we see the discord of the flesh. Here's a short excerpt from a poem by Stuttered Kenny, indicating the battle between flesh and spirit. I'm a man, and a man's a mixture, right down from his very birth, for part of him comes from heaven, and part of him comes from the earth. The manifestations of the flesh. The passage here talks about biting, devouring, consuming. All describe the unholy civil war that existed in the Galatian churches. These words were commonly used in Hellenistic Greek to suggest wild animals engaged in a deadly struggle. Picture members of the church acting like wild animals trying to destroy each other. That is what was happening in the churches of Galatia. The flesh is also legalistic. The entire focus of the Judaizers was legalistic in promoting the Mosaic Law. Legalism can treat people harshly and often leads to divisions. Kind of a little side note, but talk about legalism. Have any of you ever had a close friend who was a Mormon? I have. I had a co-worker when um, we lived in Okinawa and I was civilian with the Air Force. He was Mormon. And usually unless they're part of a cult, they're good people. They're not troublemakers. You wouldn't mind to have a Mormon as your neighbor. They're not going to have wild parties. In this individual myself, we used to have numerous conversations during work about Christianity and Mormonism. And he told me about how Mormons were not supposed to drink caffeinated drinks or soda. They weren't supposed to watch R-rated movies and had to prove their income to the church so the church knew whether they were tithing or not. One day I walked past his desk and he was listening to AC, DC, Highway to Hell. And I was, dude, dude is an Air Force terminology, especially if you deal with fighter pilots. I was like, dude, what is this? It's You're not supposed to drink caffeinated beverages. You're not supposed to watch an R-rated movie but ACDC Highway to Hell is okay. In his response, well, the Mormon church doesn't say anything about music. At this point, the image of a lemming walking off a cliff came to my mind. Really? Maybe they need to start drinking caffeinated drinks to wake up and have a position on music also. Quarrelsome is also a manifestation of the flesh. Although we don't know for sure it is possible that the churches in Galatia had divided into three groups because something similar is shown in 1 Corinthians 1.10 and following. And in Galatia, it could have been the followers of Paul, it could have been the followers of James, and it could have been the followers of Peter. And if this is true, it is worth noting that Paul never promotes his team. Paul always promotes the truth. The flesh can also be overbearing having to be right, or having the winning argument, never wanting to lose. And the final result is that the partisan strife will be fatal to the Galatian community as a whole. The body's own members will end up destroying the larger entity. Much like a cancer destroys its own body, so will these individual members destroy the Galatian church if they continue down the path that they were on. The flesh is opposed to the Spirit, and as such is it opposed to God. Romans seven fifteen to 20, which is always a favorite one to read because it's a tongue twister. For I do not understand what I am doing because I do not practice what I want to do, but I do what I hate. And if I do what I do not want to do, I agree with the law that it is good. So now I am no longer the one doing it, but it is sin living in me. For I know that nothing good lives in me, that is, in my flesh. For the desire to do what is good is with me, but there is no ability to do it. For I do not do the good that I want to do, but I practice the evil that I do not want to do. Now, if I do what I do not want, I am no longer the one doing it, but it is sin that lives in me. Now a little bit farther to the right, Romans 8, 5-7. For those who live according to the flesh, think about things of the flesh. But those who live according to the spirit, about the things of the spirit. For the mindset of the flesh is death, but the mindset of the spirit is life and peace. For the mindset of the flesh is hostile to God because it does not submit itself to God's law, for it is unable to do so. In verses 16 to 18, Paul talks about the Spirit. Walk by is the present active imperative tense. It's used for habitual conduct, ongoing, something that is, you are constantly doing. So Paul is saying living by the prompting of the powers of the Spirit is a continuous thing, and it's the key to conquer our sinful desires. Paul begins this section with, I say then, in other words, take my advice. Those who live according to the law depend on the energy of the flesh. Those who live by grace depend on the power of the Spirit. To live by the Spirit means to have our daily lives under His control, delivered from a life of bondage to legalism. Think of the older brother in the parable of the prodigal son. He was driven by legalism. We must resist the temptation to be like the older brother. And the Spirit desires what is from or of God. Think about when you first became a Christian, the initial joy, victory over temptation, passion for sharing the gospel. But what happens after those first initial weeks or months? Is the passion still there? What happens the first time you stumble, or the first time I stumbled? Do we feel discouraged and defeated? we tend to start varying away. It's through the Spirit that we are able to live the victorious walk in the Christian life. Walking by the Spirit is constantly living in God's presence, is praying, reading your Bible daily, practicing the spiritual disciplines. Willpower is not able to control the flesh or produce the fruit of the Spirit. I know because I've wandered down that barren path more than I'd like to admit. Christian character is built with the power of the Spirit. The Spirit seeks to transform us into Christ's likeness. Second Corinthians 3.18 We all, with unveiled faces, are looking as in a mirror at the glory of the Lord and are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory. This is from the Lord who is the Spirit. Paul is calling on the Galatians to remember what was begun by the Spirit that he addressed back in Galatians 3.3 when he said, Are you so foolish? After beginning with the Spirit, are you now going to be made complete by the flesh? And in verse 16, when it says, You will not carry out the desire of the flesh. This carries the strongest possible negative tone. It means never under any circumstances If you walk by the Spirit, will you carry out the desires of the flesh? And in verse 17, Paul presents two ways of being saved that are engaged in battle with the Galatian church. And I don't really mean two ways, one way and one false way. One is human effort and living a godly life through human effort, or God's free grace in Christ living a godly life through the power of the Spirit. These are the two sides of us locked in mortal combat, each doing its best to prevail against the other. And the flesh is not just the material or physical realm it includes the mind, the will, the emotions, the physical body. One way to look at this is that it includes everything we place our trust in that does not include God. During our life, we will never escape the battle between these two forces. And oh, how I wish we could. Jerome, an early theologian, moved to an austere location in an attempt to avoid the temptations he faced while living in Rome, only to find he was still pursued by those memories. Oh, how often I imagined that I was in the midst of the pleasures of Rome when I was stationed in the desert, in that solitary wasteland which is so burned up by the heat of the sun that it provides a dreadful habitation for the monks. I who because of the fear of hell had condemned myself to such a hell and who had nothing but scorpions and wild animals for company often thought that I was dancing in a chorus with girls my face was pale from fasting but my mind burned with passionate desires within my freezing body and the fires of sex seethed even though the flesh had already died in me as a man One of the greatest dangers we face as Christians is complacency. To think we won't fall. And I'm sure we've all known people who have fallen. When Kyung and I lived in Colorado Springs, there was a very large church in Colorado Springs. And the pastor was caught. He was married. He was caught in an adult homosexual relationship. And he had to step down from that church. To think we can withstand the temptations through our own strength is stupid. None of us are so spiritually strong and mature that we can ignore this warning. But neither are we so weak that we can't be freed from the tyranny of the flesh through the power of the Spirit. In the Spirit, there is always, it's always opposed to the flesh. It is there to lead us in victory. And through the leading of the Spirit, we must keep our eyes fixed on Jesus. The more we say no to sin, the easier it is to say no until it becomes a habit. The more we say yes to Jesus, the easier it is to say yes until it becomes a habit. The battle between flesh and spirit is a daily battle. Do you seek God's will or his advice? Do you go to him in prayer? Or do you attempt to do things your own way? There's a story of King Asa from Second Chronicles 14.8 to 16.14. And I will not read the whole passage. I will summarize it. King Asa was attacked by an army from Cush that numbered one, over one million. And Judah's army only numbered 580,000. But King Asa cried out to the Lord, And Judah was victorious. Then King Basha of Israel went to war with King Asa. And instead of seeking the Lord, King Asa paid tribute to King Ben-Hadad of Aram, who defeated the Israelite king. Then the prophet Hanani rebuked King Asa for not seeking the Lord and relying on another man. For the remainder of King Asa's reign... Judah was not free from war. Then later in King Asa's life, he developed a disease that got progressively worse, and instead of seeking the Lord for healing, he sought healing through human physicians. Many times God will lead us to people, but we should always go first to God, and then where we are led by the Spirit verse 18, if you are led by the Spirit, you, know, you are no longer under the law. Romans 6.14 For sin will not rule over you, because you are not under the law, but under grace. In Romans 7.6 But now we have been released from the law, since we have died to what held us, so that we may serve in the new way of the Spirit, and not in the old letter of the law. The Spirit restores us to God draws us to him its salvation is through the work of the spirit we are sealed by the spirit and the Holy Spirit lives in us from that point on we are sanctified through the leading of the spirit the law has no power to censor condemn or punish a person who is led by the spirit just as Jesus is the fulfillment of the law the spirit is the replacement and fulfillment the law is God's instrument for moral guidance the spirit takes the place of the law for Christians this doesn't mean we will stop sinning how many of you in this room who drive have never lost their cool driving in Thailand I know I have many times you can ask my wife I'm really quick with the horn now which I know is culturally unacceptable but I do it anyway the Christian life is one of freedom in submission We are free through Christ. But freedom is not licensed to sin, as we read in the first verse of this passage. Here's another article from a newspaper. The newspapers report a Michigan state policeman who had stopped a man for driving 75 in a 45 zone. The speeder reached into his pocket and flashed an official seal and signature of the U.S. Secretary of State. He informed the officer that he was the consul general of another country and therefore was immune from the law. Frustrated the officer had no choice but to let the offender go. That afternoon the officer clocked another speeder scorching the road at 93 and a 55. With lights glaring and siren blaring the officer sped down the road after him. To his amazement the diplo- to his amazement he discovered that the reckless driver was the same foreign diplomat. Rudely, the diplomat announced that he had no intention of keeping the speed and they would do as he pleased. Impatiently, he honked his horn while the policeman radioed headquarters and was informed there was nothing they could do to detain the diplomat. As the officer frustratedly handed the diplomat's papers back to him, he said, even though you aren't subject to our laws, you could at least have some regard for the safety of our people. This story reminds us that we as believers are not obligated to keep the avalanche of rules and regulations in the Mosaic legal system. Like the foreign council, we are immune from the Mosaic law. In addition, in Christ, we also have complete immunity from the eternal sense required by God for breaking his Old Testament law. This does not mean that we have an excuse to be lawless. We have no more right to live above God's moral principles found in the Mosaic Law, then the council had to live above the reasonable laws of that country. On the contrary, we have the responsibility to submit ourselves to the principle of love defined in the scriptures. The New Testament tells us that the person who loves God and his neighbor with all his heart fulfills the Old Testament law. God has given us in the New Testament his guidelines for us to follow. When we obey them, we are loving as he loves. If we fail to obey his New Testament commands and love as he loves, we'll be no different than the reckless foreign diplomat who was acting against the spirit of the law, even though he was not literally violating that law. Freedom in Christ does not give us the right to do as we please, but the power and ability to do as we ought. I will close with one kind of comparative um, example. We have a choice of three different ways to live our lives. And this can be illustrated by three different kinds of dogs. And I'm not saying that we are dogs, but it's just an illustration. The first one is under the law. That's a dog that lives on a leash. And I'm sure if you've ever had a dog, you probably had one of these. Whenever you go out of the house, it must be put on a leash And it pulls against it, it resists it, and it must be jerked back onto the path. That's a person under the law. Then there's one without the law. A dog that lives without a leash. Open the door and off they go. I had one like that. Then it was exercise around the neighborhood trying to get the dog back. That kind of dog gets into all kinds of trouble and it has no restraint. And finally we have one that's with the author of the law. This one comes out of the house with its master and without a leash. He goes about freely but returns at his master's command. He is bound by love to his master. That is the person who walks by the Spirit and obeys out of love. That's the position of the believer in Jesus Christ. Let us pray. You've been listening to a sermon recorded at Chiang Mai Christian Fellowship in Chiang Mai, Thailand.